You're listening to the Classic Gamers Guild Podcast. Hello, mates. Welcome back to the Classic Gamers Guild Podcast. I am joined here today with my lovely co-host, Anna. Anna, how are you today, dear? Oh, just fabulous. And how are you doing, Paul? I'm lovely. Thank you so much. Um, we've got a very special guest with us today, a very talented and creative programmer, I would say, um, whose last name is the same of my favorite stretchy doll when I was a kid, Mr. Chad Armstrong. How are you, mate? I'm doing great. Good reference to Stretch Armstrong. <laughs> Love that guy. I was so disappointed when his insides got all hard and brittle. I was hoping he'd last forever. But enough about Stretch Armstrong, I suppose. Um, I, I, I love your work, mate. I'm particularly fascinated with your, I guess you could just say like the things that you are interested in are, are very in, almost in parallel to, to mine, uh, being a, a fan of Sierra games, uh, AGI and Parsers in particular, um, but also, you know, uh, in a modern sense, using uh, a lot of Mac-related software. I would say that you're uh, a, like my spirit animal, but I'm afraid that might be offensive to you as you're not an animal. But <laughs> the best I can kind of relate it is, is that it seems like if, if I was a talented programmer, I would probably be doing the things that you are. Um, so I guess I'll start it off with a question that helps, right? Um, and that would be what got you into Sierra games in general? Uh, that would probably start in, you know, like most of us, when you're kids and the things that you, you learn and you get into and you, you end up loving throughout your, your lifetime. And, uh, for me, uh, I was introduced to Sierra Games probably around 1985 and probably started with the original King's Quest. And so my friend had a Tandy computer and they had a lot of the Sierra Games. And, uh, they even had like the black box King's Quest games and things like that. So it started off with like King's Quest 1, 2, 3, Space Quest, then going on down the line. So you actually played them in order like that. I actually don't come across that too often. Yeah. I, I was probably fortunate enough to actually kind of get them in that, in that order, at least up through about the late 80s or very early 90s when eventually the Tandys couldn't play the new game. So there was a, uh, about six years, six or seven years there where I couldn't play any of the new games and so it wasn't until I finally got a, uh, a computer, uh, when I was at the university, I could finally go back and start playing some of those other games. Oh, okay. Well, that's kind of neat. So you, so you had a little bit of a break, probably around the same time I had a, a bit of a break from playing games. Now, now, at what point did you decide you wanted to do more than just play the games that you loved? Well, uh, one, one of the big things was for me uh, when I was in high school and trying to figure out like, well, what do I want to do? And, uh, I loved, uh, playing Sierra games and video games. It's like, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to go, uh, learn how to make games and go work for Sierra. And so that got led me to become a programmer, going to go and learn computer science and, uh, did like a couple of my own little text games in, in, uh, college and, but it wasn't until about two years ago uh, that I wondered, like, is it possible to reverse engineer the AGI style of Sierra games from the mid-80s? And I did a quick little search, and the answer is an emphatic yes. <laughs> and uh, I found a, uh, a fellow, I think it's from the Netherlands, Barry Hansen. So if you've seen the Twitter account, AGI Stuff, uh, he's the one that created that. And so he had a presentation he gave uh, 
a, uh, at a conference and it's recorded. It's on YouTube and he talked about the process of learning how to reverse engineer the AGI games and he wrote some scripts in the language Python and he had these scripts available up on the, the code sharing site, uh, GitHub. And it's like, so I went and looked at that. Oh, that's really cool. Um, but I decided I was going to take a crack at that, except I was going to write these scripts in another language. It was going to be a mix of uh, Objective-C and C. And so oh. I started just kind of writing my own language, uh, my own scripts to figure out how were these games put together. And it was really kind of insightful to see uh, how these games were constructed, especially with some very limited resources. You think about you only had maybe a couple of megabytes spread across several uh, disks, and you only had anywhere from maybe 256 to 640K of RAM for these games to be able to wonder. So they had to be very smart about how they were conserving their all the precious RAM and disk space that they had for these games. So did you keep with those constrictions when, when you were recreating it? So what I was doing was learning how you delved into the games and being able to see all the kind of the resources, like such as uh, uh, there's a gigantic words list for each of the games, the things that you understand, like a pouch or diamonds, get tape, <laughs> girl, you know, things along those lines. And mm -hmm. so that's one set of resources. And then you have other sources such as views, which might be something like a, like an inventory object that you would see when you say like look pouch. Um, also things that would be animated. Or then you have pictures, which would be the, the background pictures, which are actually vector art. Uh, oh. So that's kind of clever on how they went about drawing a lot of those backgrounds. All these layers. Yes. <laughs> I, I think my, my first personal introduction into deconstructing these games was uh, I had a desire to uh, basically I came across the view files for the um, Police Quest 2 version um, that was ported to the PC-98 um, and if you're familiar it's got quite uh, obscene wacky graphics compared to the traditional Police Quest you know there's bright purple mohawks and, and <laughs> things like this it's just a very color colorful version so I decided to uh, that was obviously an SCI game, so I used uh, Phil Fortier's SCI companion and, and took out all the, the uh, traditional views, if you will, and put in the view files for the, the Japanese game. And that just kind of really got me on a kick to, to go further. And, and a lot of my favorites are the AGI ports, Gold Rush and things like this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I found your lovely Mac port because, um, it, you know, I genuinely spend probably 40% of my computing on a, on a 486 or, or Pentium, but for the the sake of the internet, uh, I have to, you know, I, I've got to use a Mac, which I choose for modern. Long story short, the wine wrapper uh, that I was using wasn't really available anymore with Catalina, with the 60, you know, when they abandoned 32-bit and went 62 only. So I just started Googling around. I was like, well, I mean, the odds are, are needle in a haystack that somebody out there cared enough to, to port AGI Studio to Mac, but I might as well look. And sure enough, I found your site, mate, and and it was just it was just amazing. I couldn't I could not believe that that somebody else out there, that being you, spoiler, had taken the time, <laughs> care, and effort, and concern to port that over to the Mac. So uh, I say that all to say that if, if you know, despite uh, or if, if there's not a, a ton of people downloading and using it, it, it meant a lot to me. Uh, and I've definitely spent probably hours just deconstructing games and. I, you know, took the, the chime from the Sierra logo intro and made it like a text tone, just all kinds of, you know, when you play these games 10 times each, you, you find other ways mm -hmm. to enjoy them. And AGI Studio uh, really helps do that for me. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I actually found that uh, a fellow named, uh, I think it was Jeremy Penner, had actually ported uh, AGI Studio over to the Mac, but this was something like 17 years ago. So it worked on older PowerPC Macs. And um, so I started looking into it and found out that the uh, Linux version out there was written in Qt or Qt uh, uh, frameworks. And it's like, oh, okay, I've worked on this before. So I know it works across multiple platforms, Windows, Linux, Mac. And so I looked into it and, uh, you know, managed to be able to get things ported over and make a nice, uh, Mac wrapper about around things, uh, within about the course of a month. And so that was my next step of after I had written these, uh, scripts to try to figure out how to reverse engineer the old AGI games. And it was moving on to, okay, now I need some you know, full tool set because I want to try to do more than just be able to look at the words list or export the views, but be able to try to go in and modify and edit some games. So that was the next step, certainly, which then, of course, led up to King's Quest One Redux. Mm -hmm. Yeah, getting right to the nitty gritty with that stuff. That's a... Uh a whole new language to me. I've, I've never really used a Mac in my life, except for at school. Uh, in grade five, they had hyperdrives with the Macs, the, the little ones. I think it was, what, 87 or something, but that's it. Yeah, actually, I grew up a lot with uh, with Apple computers in my schools. Um, we had, you know, various Apple IIEs. I remember playing uh, Oregon Trail and couldn't hunt, and so my poor family starved, <laughs> and then ended up having like uh, Apple II Cs and some early Macintoshes during my middle school years. High school was uh, Mac Classics, and uh, you know various other performance and things like that. But uh, did have generally at home. It was like myself and my friend had Tandy computers, so I was also well versed in DOS. But it wasn't until I got mm -hmm. to the university that I truly saw and used this Windows thing I read about, but really had never <laughs> used too much of that. Point. So, so you work with the AGI. That's that stands for. Now I know I'm a little bit more of a layman than some of you, but this means adventure game interpreter. So pretty much it breaks down to you being able to break down all of the code so that you uh, can put it on another system? Effectively, or at least you can sort of deconstruct it and then make your own edits and then kind of reconstruct it again. Right. So that definitely a lot of very clever people 20 years ago uh, figured out how to reverse engineer uh, these old games and did a lot of documentation out there. And so there was uh, the initial tools out there were released in like the later part of the 90s. And so these have gone through various other ports and things like that. And so the uh, AGI Studio for Mac is my own little contribution of saying, okay, here's these existing tools and here's a Mac native version of it. Hmm. Okay. So it, uh, and that led you to the Redux. So the, the Redux, and for, for a long time, I thought it was just Redo or something, which kind of makes sense as well. So like, here's a redo of, of the game. And so when I was going about uh, doing this, I decided like, I'm going to go in and try to clean a few things up, make some little additions. Um, and one thing I always thought was odd in the original King's Quest game is that you can jump and you can duck. And it's like, I never ducked. And what do you, what do you do with hmm with the right. duck mode in the game and it probably wasn't until last couple of years i found out you could duck and you could avoid the witch that's sweeping around swooping around trying to capture you it's like oh okay well maybe i should just turn him into a duck or something like that so <laughs> i went into donald duck's playground which is uh, another agi game 
And so I was able to extract uh, some of the resources uh, from that game mm. and then kind of import it into the Redux version of King's Quest 1 and then colored the duck with sort of uh, King Graham's or Sir Graham's uh, coloring. And it's like, boom, there you go. You have a, a duck. I love it. I, I, I was happy to hear you call it Reduck instead of Redo when, when you'd said it the first time because it, it, it answered that internal burning, burning question of, you know, where did duck mode come from? Um, suspecting that it was a play on words, but that makes perfect sense. Um, <laughs> yeah, and Donald Duck's Playground is a great game too. So, I mean, did you ever play that on Mac? Uh, I, I did play that as a kid. I remember do, playing that game along with my friend as well and, you know, trying to catch fruit and missing mm -hmm. and things like that. Sorting toys and sorting the toys. And, uh, and there's one, oh, the, there's the, the train one. That one is, that one's ridiculously difficult and you don't get much money. So I didn't bother much with that one. <laughs> no, it wasn't the most lucrative one. And you got to build up that playground. So you want to earn the dough. I had completely yeah. forgotten about Donald Duck's playground. That was, um, Al Lowe's first game i believe with sierra i mean it was one of sierra's first games in general but but i'm surprised i forgot about that because I, I had on my notes to ask you um you know how were you with the graphic side of things to have come up with with that duck and and the smooth walking cycle that he's got but um i see you very cleverly uh kind of poached it if you will from from the playground game well done yeah yes so my uh graphical capabilities i did put in a couple of edits here and there not not a whole lot uh but there were some areas such as um like there's a palm tree in front of the castle Daventry. I'm like, that's kind of weird that you have all these deciduous and, and pine trees and a palm tree. I'm like, well, that's, that's not fit. right. So I, I got rid of the palm tree, added some more flowers and kind of added the additional, uh, masonry behind where the tree was. Uh, did a couple of other little things and different coloring, uh, modified a couple of the inventory items and things like that as well. One example is you see, uh, the, the mushroom. And it looks colorful on the screen, but when you pick it up, it's a gray mushroom. It's like, oh, well, I modified that. So it actually had spots and it was colorful. And uh, I did add a couple of extra small areas in the game. Uh, one of the uh, things that makes the game nefarious is that if the dwarf robs you and takes one of the three treasures, you're, you're a dead man you're walking. Out of luck. At a dead end and you don't even know it yet. And so I added uh, some additions that you can find an extra set of stairways and find the dwarf's house, which I nixed from the King's Quest II and did some little modifications there. And so you can get your treasures back if you do get robbed. Oh, and I think you added some additional look features, the more things you can look at and check out, right? Y yes. So in the, in the first one... Uh, when trying to look around, you normally you type look in a lot of the games and it would give you a general description of the area. But in, uh, in the first King's Quest, uh, and I think maybe even in the original Space Quest, it, you just say look and they wouldn't know what you do. So you'd have to say look room, look description. And then when I went through pretty much, there's about like 83 rooms or so in, in uh, King's Quest 1 and I found that there was actually some screens, there were no descriptions at all like oh well now i have to figure out what do i do so i went over and played the sci version and was able to get some of the descriptions that were used there because um it josh mandel mentioned that when he helped you know work on the sci version of king's quest one uh that there were a couple things of doing some rewording maybe adding some extra descriptions and stuff so that was useful to be able to go through and uh, have at least something kind of official to be able to still display in the game 
Yeah, it's it's quite obviously a, a labor of love. It's it's all those little details that that we really appreciate. Those of us who played played these games growing up or played a game like King's Quest, you know, a, a bloody dozen times. When you go back, at what I really admire about what you've done to the game is that nothing nothing stands out as as different or changed in a good way. There's just there's just a general cleansliness about the environment that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really do get a feeling of improvement from it. Like it's now the same game, but it's all the things that maybe should have been done long ago, but they weren't able to do it within their timeline or maybe didn't even have the ability to. So, Yeah, I, I think there were some of the advances they did with the AJ engine, like they end up adding another speed mode. So you had your slow, normal, fast, and fastest. But in the original one, you only had normal, uh, slow, normal, and fast. But fast was the same as yeah. fastest. So yeah. we had, so I added that extra kind of speed mode, uh, and just other little things, be able to look around at things and some other little cleanup here and there. And, uh, I think there were some little updates and modifications to the game over time because I did encounter an issue with some of the point systems, especially regarding the magic bowl. And so if you did everything right, you could actually end up with 159 out of 158 points. Yeah. And so. <laughs> I was kind of curious, like, well, where's that extra point coming from? And I looked at an old King's Quest companion and saw the points list. And there were some points that were slightly different versus some other lists I compared. And I was like, oh, okay. I think I had found where some things had been changed. And so I think that's what then there was like an extra point you could actually add there. And then they even discovered another little quirky thing you could do. There was a certain way that you could like get a bowl and uh, then try to like look in the bowl, then fill it, eat it, and then it would actually give you like a negative point. And so you could actually keep <laughs> on doing that cycle until it went down to zero. And then if you did it one more time, you ended up with 255 points because the number of points would actually just kind of roll over backwards. Oh, yeah, that's great. I love those uh, those little quirks. But but so you dealt with it so that it didn't happen anymore, right? I mean, it, it made the point system more honest. Is that what you did? Correct. So it can only go up to the 158 now. <laughs> That's very reasonable. <laughs> uh, was somebody out there? Um, I'm not sure of their name. They they were only identified by by you know a user handle anyway on on the old SCI programming site. But somebody out there had gone through Space Quest One and Two and and basically just simply recolored Roger to to look like how he does in the later games. You know, with the more white and purple uniform and blonde hair. Um, but just even even that little tweak, just like your games, was just so much more enjoyable. You know, just to go back again, having played these games so many times, it's nice to to find a new twist on it. Um, so all that being said, as verbose as that was, at my Apologies. Do you have any plans to to tweak uh, any other games going forward? Uh, I, I still have other d- ideas about whether it's the King's Quest One or even come up with some uh, other ideas and things like that. And I've even joked about like a uh, Knight's Quest or something like that, and really kind of redo or revamp the idea of uh, King's Quest One. I don't know if it'll ever fully happen. I mean, it would be such a huge amount of work that even if I kind of borrowed off a lot of the ideas and concepts of the games that exist already, but then it's like, oh, maybe I'll try something else. I, even, uh, I think just about a week or two ago, I, I joked, like, well, I think I'll write these Suit Larry 4 or something like that. Right. And Larry has to go around looking for the missing floppies or something. Right. Oh, boy, I'd be down and, for that Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah me too. I, <laughs> I, I actually found there was a Leisure Suit Larry mobile game for, like, Windows Mobile that came out, like, around 2000. Seven or something like that. It's like, oh, I'd never heard of this. And I found something and it sounded actually 
I think he even worked a little off that idea or something like that. Like he's trying, Larry's trying to find some discs or something like that, or maybe it's like an Easter egg or something in the game. Like, and I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. I've never heard of this before. It's amazing when those things slip under the radar, considering we're all you know, vehemently looking for for anything new that's sort of Sierra. I, I've, I've got to say, I love the idea of the, the Knight's Quest, because you could potentially give us the uh, the Knight from that PC Junior King's Quest case that we never see in the game. <laughs> yes. It'd be nice I, to finally I, get a Knight in one of them games. Yes. So I, I even have that, uh, even with the uh, IBM PC Junior chiclet uh, overlay and stuff like that. Actually, I think it came with two different copies. So I was like, oh, that's that's really cool. It's just those n- nice little extras, which is the thing that's just so much fun about it, being able to try to find some of these uh, original boxes and stuff, you know, from those that I still have as a kid. You know, I've got like King's Quest 2 II and 3 and, and some Space Quest games and uh, the first two Quest 4 games. But then I did manage to get a copy of, like, say, Space Quest 3 with the, uh, like, the uh, Andromedan, you know, glasses and pig nose but it hasn't been cut punched out of the original die cast yet it's like oh this is, this is great oh so good <laughs> i have i have space quest 3 but i don't have those bits yeah that was definitely when i was searching around ebay you want to be able to see like okay i want to see this stuff inside okay that looks good yeah <laughs> The worst crime my my little son has ever committed was uh, he ripped off the bloody nose on the the uh, insert for that Space Quest Three game. You know, it comes with the the two guys mask, and he, you know he ripped it off. I, f- I found myself frantically taping it together like I was in grade school again, yeah. doing a, a horrible paste job with scotch tape trying to get it back on. But that was your um, other son. He's no longer around. So yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> So, okay, that's pretty cool. Uh, and I mean, not everything you do is game-based. I, I was cruising around and, and I saw something that you have called 33 RPM. Could you, could you maybe explain to me a little bit about what that is and, and how you would use it to control media? Yeah, so uh, if you, you know, had a record player as a kid and stuff like that, and you remember it's kind of different modes like 33 and 30 RPMs or 78, and you'd be able to slow down and speed up your, your uh, records and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, one thing I like to do is play guitar and stuff like that. So sometimes trying to transcribe music and you'd be able to slow it down or be able to change the pitches and stuff like that. And so uh, a number of years ago, uh, I've been trying to work on a similar type of app. And uh, so a number of years ago, I did end up uh, writing an app that'd be able to take uh, music from your computer and then you can be able to slow down and speed it up, change the pitch and things like that. So it's an app that I haven't touched in a couple of years, and unfortunately it doesn't work on the very latest version of uh, Mac West these days, but still kind of playing around the idea if I want to completely redo that app as well, in addition to various other utilities I've written over over time and, and things like that. Uh, but I definitely wrote a lot of other utilities, primarily Mac-based, uh, but then uh, last two years definitely got more back into the game side of things, Especially, you know, mentioned that uh, I had dreams like, well, I want to go make games for Sierra. But by the time I got out of the university, the, the Sierra world was very much it's, gone. Yeah, it really wasn't <laughs> wasn't the same thing anymore. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, this is the closest I've ever been able to come back to try to recapture a little bit of that magic and just kind of try to be a little part of that. And there's that's also kind of led on to you know been doing some of these ports for some of these other games and bring them over to the Mac, uh, especially 
primarily adventure games as well. So those games are created using the uh, adventure game studio. It's like, oh, wait, I, I can easily port these over and, and make them these nice little Mac apps as well. It's like, oh, this is cool. You know, this is kind of my little contribution to, you know, be able to for the game industries and, and Macs and adventure games and, and generally these smaller studios. Some that are just like small little games. Some are, you know, by other indies and things like that. It's been a tremendous amount of fun to be able to help help out. Uh, oh, that's pretty work, cool. Yeah. So you actually get a chance to talk with these people and, and get to know them, make connections, as well as port their games, I'm guessing, because it'd be more personal uh, being indies oh, uh, and just absolutely. working on their own. Yeah, that sounds yeah. lovely. Yeah. And first first couple that I uh, worked on was uh, some of the games for Infamous Adventures and Infamous Quests, kind of same, similar group of people and stuff like that. And it was Stephen Alexander uh, from those that kind of pointed me to this this post on the adventure game studio forums. It's like, Oh yeah, here you can do it because I know you're into this type of thing. And like, I was like, Oh my God, this is so cool. And so I started and uh, somebody had actually uh, ported, uh, I think, I think it was maybe the space quest two VGA or something like that. To yeah, the Mac. Yeah. But I, I saw some other uh, improvements that could be done to the, to the Mac and you have other security things called like code signing and notarizing the app that, so the computer stops complaining like, oh, this is not from a authorized developer or something like that. So I went in, you know, been trying to help out with some things like that and some other things to add some extra polish uh, for you know, a nice little proper Mac application uh, for quite a few. I think I've worked on at least seven different uh, apps right now and have a couple of other things that uh, I have in the works right now, including just even other like old projects I'll find out there on the Internet. Like, oh, cool, I'm going to try and port this and see if I can get it running. This is great because porting to the Mac was never something that was readily available. Even for some of the bigger companies, you'd be like, wow, this game is great. Can you buy it for Mac? You're like, oh, no, there's only four games over there on that shelf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was elated to, to find your AGS port job. I think you, you had only posted it recently, like perhaps April of this year. I think it was pretty recently. Um, that I saw it up there, but I, I was ecstatic because for, for years, for the last three or four years now, I, I'd say AGS has been my, uh, my morning newspaper with coffee, only it's, it's AGS with Red Bull. Um, but I, I just got in the habit years ago of, of checking AGS in the mornings, uh, just to see what, you know, what new games had come out and uh, what old ones I had missed by, with the, um, the lottery selection that they've got on the side there but i've always just been fascinated with ags and for a while there i, I had tinkered with the uh, ios port which um has basically lost support with uh, since uh, ios switched to 64-bit only but um when i was reading through your article on on porting to the mac i saw some similarities um for example like porting to the ios you basically would take the executable the exe and, and just change that to ac2.dat and it, it would just kind of magically work um this was pre 3.44 whatever we're on now but um but anyway it was just uh, and again you know hearing you talk about slowing down uh tunes for for the guitar I definitely have a, a bit of a kindred spirit sort of thing going on here being a musician myself and in the 90s i, I recall having some very shabby cassette player made by like PB or whatever that, that would slow the tape down so you could learn, learn songs and everything. <laughs> so I'm going to have to check that app out for sure. But uh, I love, and, and basically I thank you so much for, for porting these AGS games over to the Macintosh because it's really quite lovely. And, and, you know, to a point, I guess with um, infamous quests and adventures, uh, you know, there, there's a, I think a 
somewhat of a commercial need. I, I know uh, Dave and Janet Gilbert, they kind of handle their own programming when it comes to porting their AGS mm-hmm. stuff, but it would be nice to see more and more of them get ported over. Oh, absolutely. And I am definitely thrilled that uh, Stephen Alexander, you know, pointed me to that and then, you know, learned that like the, the initial port itself was very, very simple. It wasn't, you know, the type of thing that you think about if you had a, a big commercial game in the 90s came out and then, oh, if you're going to try to do a port, you'd have to get all these different libraries and do a whole bunch of rewriting. And, and here it was, uh, once again, kind of more akin to what Sierra used to do with their uh, special with their interpreted games that you had AGI and SCI and uh, effectively they were able to port these game engines to a whole bunch of different systems and so right. the resources for the games did not necessarily have to change a whole lot from one system to another and so that was really kind of cool that you could just uh, take these games and put them to different things. Now back in the 80s it was probably more of a necessity because you had like I think upwards to nine different systems that they ported AGI to it in some form or another, and because there really wasn't one very highly dominant platform at the time. I mean, even Apple itself had at least three different platforms between like the Apple II, Apple IIc, and the Macintosh or something like that. So it definitely right. behooved Apple to try to port their the kind of the main engine over to all these different platforms. And what I was able to do with the AGS, it was, seemed like it was something pretty similar that it, you had this shell of a Mac application. And I'm assuming that it just sort of is able to kind of take a look at the resources and be able to then just work with them. And it keeps it fairly small too. So the, the Mac applications I ported are maybe a, a little larger than the PC variants, maybe by uh, two or three megabytes or something like that. Not not too much, which is a vast improvement over trying to use Wine or something like that. And I've seen that with a couple of other games out there that there'll be a, a Wine version of the Mac app, but it's hundreds of megabytes larger. Yeah. Uh, one, one example is StairQuest. Uh, hmm. was the, like the PC version was, you know, I, I'm trying to remember, 20, 30 megabytes or something. But then the Mac version was like over 500 megabytes because it had all this wine, uh, wrapper included, which just made it ridiculous. But then that's a lot of took, five and a quarter discs. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I took a look at that game and I was kind of just curious, like, wait, is this, is this an AGS game? And then I kind of dug into it and then you know, I found the particular files I was looking for and then it's like, oh yes, this is an AGS game. Let me, let me see if I can port this over and it got it working like, oh, this is cool. And then so I kind of went off and uh, kind of poked at uh, the people that uh, seemed to have worked on the uh, StairQuest game and I think it was Decaf Jedi on Twitter I managed to get a hold of it like, oh yeah, that's really cool, you know, and set it up and so yeah, really a lot of fun to be able to kind of you know, improve this process as well. In addition to bringing uh, new games over to the Mac, yeah, and it's so, it's quite quite handy because I had um, a game that you've already ported, I believe that that I saw on on your website was uh, a Crimson Diamond by our, our dear friend Julia, and um, months ago. Uh, I had ported over, not ported, that's that's giving myself credit where it's not deserved. I had made it work on Mac, let's just say, because there was no technical prowess behind what I did, um, which was all I simply did was put it in a wine wrapper and included wine in it, which, like you said, it made her poor game like 640 megabytes, <laughs> of which, you know, 630 was, was just because 
they have to assume the user doesn't have wine, so you have to put the entire wine package in with it. Um, so in other words, it's it's really nice what you're doing uh, for, for indie developers like Julia, because now she can offer Crimson Diamond, let's say, for, for Mac users for however many, you know, megabytes, under 100 probably, um, for what it is. You know, you, you won't go to downloads and see 600 for the Mac and 40 for the PC or something, you know, jarring like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's... Uh very stoked to be able to help Julia out, and it's uh, I love what she's doing with with the Crimson Diamond. I mean, you take a look at it, and it definitely, uh, and it definitely captures that spirit, of, especially the late '80s era games. And you definitely look at it; it's like, okay, yeah, it's like the the Canadian Laura Bow in uh, <laughs> spirit. Exactly. I love her cute little freckles too. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my, my wife and I, uh, my wife does a lot of streaming and we did, uh, play it, uh, on, on her Twitch channel, Mel Loves Game 2, uh, a number of months ago and somebody was playing it and there, there was somebody, uh, I think it was, I think she, some, somebody from Quebec, I believe, and mentions like, this is so Canadian music, all we need is a harmonica now. <laughs> <laughs> it does, it's but got that lovely t- Canadian folk tune. Maybe just get like, Get Don Cherry to be the narrator, and you're all set. <laughs> yes. Well, as as uh, Julie mentions that she has, uh, you know, the great I think something like folk, uh, great Canadian folk book or something like that. So she has a lot of music that uh, comes from that as well. And then, of course, her and Dan Policar have been uh, doing some work together with the music as well, and actually streaming some of it uh, online on YouTube and Twitch. So. It's been actually really cool being able to listen and and watch what everybody's been doing with these games from Steven Alexander to Julia Minamata. I mean, everything you're doing with the AGI ports, uh, Lori and Corey Cole sharing with us what's happening with Summer Days. You know, I mean, what a amazing time we live in with all of this open communication uh, oh, with absolutely. all these creative people. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's things uh, that blow my mind that it's like i i've been able to meet some of like my favorite musicians authors and now even like game developers uh mm-hmm. you know virtually online whether it's through things like twitch or email or whatever and you know that's really neat versus you think about a couple of dec- decades ago you probably wouldn't have that opportunity uh so much and it's not necessarily like and it's great. I mean, it's like not somebody like Stephen King or somebody who has, you know, millions of fans out there, but mm-hmm. it definitely keep, keeps things a lot more personal to be able to actually kind of meet some of these people and be able to, you know, say thank you. And, um, and, you know, with things that you're seeing with like, uh, the Coles and the process that they're going through, and especially as a very kind of small company and the different sets of challenges that are involved in trying to create uh, a game that they don't have a parent company to be able to handle all the things like, okay, we need to do the distribution and we need to do the legalese and we need to print the manuals and, and all that other stuff. And so there's a lot more that they have to worry about uh, now that they didn't necessarily probably have to handle it as much back during the Sierra game days. Exactly. It's it's like relearning the craft in a way because you're doing it as, as an independent now and, and forming your own team. Oh, certainly. And it's, it's a lot of fun to kind of see you know, some of these companies and then we'll say, oh, here's, you know, kind of a little snapshot of work, what I'm working on and things like that. Like Phil 
uh, 48, I think is announced mm-hmm. of Icefall Games. He'll uh, you know, release, you know, a, a very kind of meaty blog entry every once in a while of different things he's been working on or going in depth. And he has some of his own games, whether it's like Snail Track or Cascadia Quest. And uh, he's gone in and talked about, uh, you know, here's the process he did for the text parser. And he gets really, really, you know, delightfully nerdy and geeky about the whole process, which is kind of interesting. Uh, even, you know, when I was looking at how the AGI games did that, it made a lot of sense and was a lot better than some of the text parsers I wrote 20 years ago from, for some of my own little starter games, uh, because they would kind of wrap a whole bunch of different terms together as a synonym. And so, like, if you're doing King's Quest 2, they, like, all the female characters would be kind of under one header in a way. So you could say, you know, Little Art Red Riding Hood or Grandma or Hag or Hagatha. Or, or her girl, woman, and it would mean all the kind of the same thing. So you could actually say, like, uh, you know, give soup to Hagatha when you're in Grandma's house, really? and the game would still understand it. I've never like, even okay. tried that. Yeah, and I, I never thought about that that's until awesome. I was looking inside the, the game file. I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And a lot of this makes sense, because if you think about just different ways of saying, well, okay, well, what if there's a stone on the ground you want the character to say to pick up the stone? Well, there's different ways you could say that. You could say get stone, get rock, get stones, pick up, acquire, uh, a lot of different ways. But the game then would probably just kind of generalize two different things, saying acquire rock or something like that. And then all these kind of synonyms or similar concepts then could just be kind of, you know, the, computer, the game engine would take a look and say, okay, yeah, maybe somebody wrote get, maybe somebody else wrote take, and it would be, you know, evaluated as the same concept. Yeah, because I, I always noticed in older games, I'd say things that would seem totally straightforward. Like, for example, ask about man in a King's Quest game. And it's like, I have no clue what you're trying to say to me. <laughs> it, was too, it was too complex for that system. <laughs> exactly. But as you're, as a kid, I would just have my little uh, my book open with the, you know, all the words that you were allowed to use. And, and every time I'd get stuck, I would just be like, go back to the words, go back to the words. <laughs> yeah, use and all it, of it definitely those. was interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely remember learning how to uh, learn how to spell certain words like the word normal. Yes. Uh, due to some of these games, and, you know, that's as somebody is a native English speaker, and I think there's also a lot of people that where English was not their first language, they, that also helped teach them English, but uh, the presentation Barry Hansen uh, gave, uh, and, I, and as I mentioned, I think he's Dutch, uh, some of the things, especially like a police quest game, those are already notoriously difficult. But, you know, knowing as a small child to be able to say, you know, uh, to give a sobriety test to somebody <laughs> is not an easy term. And even when I did play Police Quest 1 uh, back in probably 2000, and so even by that time I was an adult, and it still is difficult because sometimes you just have to know the right phrase to say you might have had the right idea but knowing the right words was not a simple thing for that particular game exactly how many times as a kid have you been like but i already tried doing that i've done it like five times that's not what i need to do to progress in the game games like you ain't said it right i know but you ain't said it right <laughs> uh, but that was great i mean it was it was good for somebody like me i i, I wasn't really a big fan of uh education in general and so these games were uh, offering me that opportunity and i didn't even know they were doing it yeah whether it's learning how to spell or even uh you know going to bring up gold rush and i think it was sort of a take on 
uh, Oregon Trail in a way. And at least one thing that is kind of interesting about that game is it definitely is very kind of educational about that particular era and these kind of different methods of that uh, Jared Wilson's trying to uh, get across the continent to get from New York City to to California for the gold rush. And so here's these just kind of different things and just different concepts of like, oh, well, you know, you're scurvy. You should have bought some oranges and things like that. <laughs> I know. And then it, you're like, why, what does scurvy and oranges have to do with each other? And I mean, you go and ask somebody and they'd be like, oh, well, you know, it prevents scurvy. And there was so much learning to be had. Have you actually completed gold rush going all the different ways? I have. Uh, so yeah. gold, gold rush was probably the last AGI game I played it was one of these i just kind of held on to for a long time because i knew it's like okay once i play this there's no more this is the last official one uh but it did finally play through it a couple of years ago i probably had at least some help i remember you know going through it and at least looking at a couple of things and figured out my own but there definitely were some things that were you needed help because there were a lot of dead ends like oh did you forget the gold coin that was kind of hidden under the gazebo in the beginning of the game oh well exactly did you visit your parents grave hmm yeah well i think you gave by but i think the hint was like well your parents are already dead so when your brother's trying to hint like go see <laughs> ah you know it was yeah. hint hint you know but even just uh, i was watching uh rick from the classic gamers guild and and uh our sometimes missing uh, co-host. Uh, I was watching him play through Gold Rush and it, it just reminded me how frustrating it, it is to play a game like that when you don't know anything at all. Because I don't believe, other than uh, us telling him, he was even going for uh, hints. Yeah, there, there definitely are some things that it's a, a little more difficult. And, and sometimes you, it's interesting to watch somebody come into something for the first time. And like I saw that uh, Space Quest Historian uh, actually played some of the King's Quest games for at least a little bit. And he's mentioned before, he's just not big into fantasy, so he's just never really bothered with any of the King's Quest games. And uh, I think there was a, a fundraiser or something like that. He did actually go and play, you know, at least a couple of minutes. And it was kind of entertaining to watch him go around with a fresh set of eyes and him going around and getting frustrated and swearing at the game for the fun of it. But... <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Well, and I didn't even start with the earlier King's Quest games. I jumped right into number four, which was a very reasonable King's Quest game to jump into. Oh, certainly. Um, that definitely was, you know, one of my favorite ones. Uh, for me, King's Quest Four has the most what I call magical feel. And mm -hmm. one thing I, I that was interesting about that one is I think it was the only game that was developed using both the AGI game engine and the SCI game engine, but I think most people have played the SEI version with the just amazing soundtrack and the better graphics. Um, but because there was the AGI one, I was able to open it up and be able to extract a few things, and I did use the points chime and added that into King's Quest 1 Redux, and it's just those little touches I loved that were... So satisfying, that point chime. Into, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I used that as one of the ringtones I have on my computer on my phone when I get a text message or something like that. So <laughs> exactly. you're like, I did something right. Yes. Point for me. As long as it's not from like a child saying, I need money. <laughs> oh yeah. Then you're like, that was the wrong tone. Where, where's the death tone? <laughs> well, I mean, okay. So are you big into scum or DOS box? Pick one. Uh, I have both in my dock right now, but uh, I started definitely with DOSBox, and I remember uh, I've been using that probably for a dozen years or something like that, and I remember 
uh, when I started using DOSBox to play, you know, games like Quest Glory 4 and stuff like that, it's like, oh wow, this this really helps fix and improve the process of being able to play some of these uh, these games and stuff like that. And especially if you try playing some some of the earlier 90s era games on like Windows 95, 98, and you <laughs> have these faster computers and certain yeah. games. Uh, it didn't work right, or there's speed issues, or you had to make a boot disk, and uh, DOSBox is definitely wonderful, and I got into Scum VM, I think, I think it was about maybe last year or two years ago, and mm -hmm. it's kind of, what is this thing? And then find out, it's like, oh, okay, well, it's similar to DOSBox, but it's great for being able to boot up uh, some games and things like that. Like, I was finally able to get all the way through Space Quest Four using the Macintosh version of the game, under Scum VM, and that seemed to have uh, fixed, resolved a lot of the speed issues with that game, and I was finally able to get past the annoying uh, mall sequence where you're trying to get away oh, from yeah. the sequel police in the Skaterama. Exactly, you're just going to die. Oh, I died <laughs> so many times. You, yeah. I mean, exactly. it was bad enough always just being hounded by the sequel police in that game and just dying so much, and mm. then just that infinite dying. I, I was never able to get past the Skaterama sequence in Space Coast War until I finally used Scum VM and like, oh my gosh, I can finally pass this game. Um, oh, wow, yeah. It's it's because of that reason that, for me, Space Coast War is the bottom of, of, <laughs> of, the, of the list for me. It's like, no, I, I don't like this one because you're just dying and it's not even fun. Space Quest 3, at least when you killed Roger, it was kind of funny. You got these funny <laughs> little pictures of him. You know, he fell to his death or he became Pod Chow or things like mm -hmm. that. So, Yeah, the the Sierra Death Generator, which you fine folk can find online. And it, it's lots of fun to create your own messages. But there's a lot of great ones for Space Quest 3 in that. <laughs> Oh, yes. I found they have uh, different types of things that you can for just tons of different games out there. But it's great to be able to make those similar type things like, you know, you know, uh, whether it's from the Police Quest or King's Quest or Space Quest games. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, funny enough, uh, Space Quest 4 was my very first Space Quest. And so I have quite a soft spot for it. And, uh, you know, I... I can't even remember it being super frustrating to me. It definitely didn't take me as long to finish as it took me to finish King's Quest IV, even though it was a point and click. But uh, it was it was really satisfying, and it, and it led me on a lifelong quest of enjoying the Space Quest games. But but simply because of its spot in the order of things, I had to place it in my number one spot. And normally I wouldn't put a, a four and a one, but with Space Quest and King's Quest, I've done that. I think that's really key with a lot of people like, well, okay, where did you start? And I've certainly heard a lot of people that, you know, they started probably at that early 90s. And so they, King's Quest V or Space Quest mm -hmm. IV games around that period might have been the first one that they played. And so it definitely means a lot to them. Like, this is, this is where I started, you know. And so it's like lots of, you know, hopefully happy memories or something like that playing those particular games. Uh, like for me, though, it was like some of these games – uh, like speak, uh, King's Quest 5, 6, 7, I didn't get to play those until the later 90s when I finally got a computer that can play these games. <laughs> yeah, uh, with uh, voice old, and everything. <laughs> yeah, because our poor old Tandy 1000 just couldn't be able to handle them. Uh, and so when I finally did get around to playing them, I, so I played 5 and enjoyed it. 6 is, is phenomenal. But when I got to 7, by this time I was a young adult and I was not real big on the Disney feel. <laughs> It was quite whimsical, I'll say that. 
<laughs> yeah, so I mean, there's some things they can kind of look back at, and there's like, okay, these are kind of cool. Ooga Booga Land was kind of cool, and there's some very bright colors, but it definitely it definitely came off with this very well. We're trying to go for a, a, a Sierra feel to it versus then mm-hmm. when Mask of Eternity came out, they definitely took a much darker feel to what they were trying to do with that game versus Seven. Very much, yeah, opposites. And uh, Six was just, it was right in the middle. There was a little bit of dark and a little bit of light. I mean, I there's a lot of people that say number six is my favorite in the series. Yeah, for, for myself, I would probably place uh, three and six at the top. And I just mm-hmm. loved kind of the, the being able to work with the spell casting. And with six, it's just, uh, you you can even just bypass all the, the spell casting if you want. And you can take a short route. And it was just a really well done game. And that's why I rank that really high. Four, I loved uh, just kind of the ambiance of it, just especially the art. The music is, is absolutely beautiful to that game. And then after that, I then probably put... Uh, King's Quest 1 after number 4. Yeah, I, I imagine so, since you, you also played that pretty much first. 4 was beautiful. The music was great out of the PC speakers, which is the only way that I heard the music until I was older. <laughs> but I still uh, have a nostalgia for the sound. Oh, certainly. Uh, my, my friend, he had a, actually this like demo cassette tape that you could get from Sierra, and this is when they were trying to promote the the uh, the audio cards, you know, like whether it's the AdLib or if you could for the, I think it was about $650 for a Roland MT32. And I'm saying, okay, this is what you can hear now. And of course, it was just an amazing step up of what you were getting before. But, you know, if you were lucky enough, you had a Tandy with three voices. Uh, if not, you had that single monotone beeping from a IBM PC speaker or something like that. But it's been really interesting, you know, speaking of Roland MT32, watching Dan Policar uh, and Julia uh, working on the music for her game and mm-hmm. see kind of this weird, funky process that he's going through and just even learning sort of the history behind then became sort of general MIDI for some of these game uh, for some of the sounds and stuff like that of that era. Exactly. I, I love the Roland MT32. It sounds beautiful. And, and on the last stream that he was doing, he, he was playing some other music and he said, oh, of what... Uh, piano played this one and i guessed it correctly as a korg t1 it just happened to be that when i was growing up my parents traded their actual real grand piano for a korg t1 which really was the height of the musical experience as far as pretending i was making music out of a game i felt like i was in heaven you know because otherwise for electronics all i had was my tiny little casio Uh, did you have electronic pianos growing up at all uh, I didn't have anything like that when I was uh, at the university. I took a music theory class, and we had like this little, uh, a smaller keyboard. I still have it. Um, it's it probably like about forty-two keys or something like that. So nothing real amazing. I'd have to even go take a look at it to see what what brand it was. But it's definitely nothing real extravagant or anything along those lines. But it was just kind of learning how to play, you know, standard chords and some standard music theory. Uh, with a with a keyboard, uh, but uh, my my friend Dan and I, when we were you know kind of making up our own little Sierra type games as kids and stuff, we'd you know have a piece of paper and draw screens, and then for music we'd just take a look, little cassette recorder and then just record uh, some of the uh, music from the Sierra games like the Genie and Keys Quest Two or things like that. But you know when you're uh, you know ten, twelve years old or whatever, you just make do with whatever you can at that time. Exactly, right? And uh, some people just want to make music. 
or are more naturally inclined to do so. I, I don't play a lot of music now, but I still I appreciate the music from video games more than ever before. If you could pick a soundtrack that has been a bit of an earworm for you lately out of a video game, what would it be? Uh, if I was going to really try to say pick a particular soundtrack, and my, my favorite series is Quest Glory series, and so I definitely have loved a lot of the music that uh, Mark Zebert did, uh, especially for like games like uh, Quest Glory 1, or Conquest Camelot, uh, but there definitely is a lot of uh, other great ones as well. Like, uh, the Quest Boy 4, Aubrey Hodges mm, did so a phenomenal good. job, and he ended up re like re-recording all that music and then released it on his Bandcamp page, uh, which is great to be able to have some of those soundtracks available uh, as well. Uh, so those d have definitely been uh, you know, soundtracks to games that I've definitely really enjoyed. Yeah, Quest for Glory 4 soundtrack is in my head quite often. Uh, actually, the, the background where the Leshy is, is in my head all the time. And then the little kid's voice going, hello. Yes, it's kind of almost <laughs> creepy and stuff like that. So yeah. No, it's just that I'm just sometimes my, it wasn't until recently my nine-year-old, he's been asking because he's into music now and he's always thinking about songs. So he'll come up and say, oh, mom, what song's in your head right now? And I'll think and I'll say, hmm, it's the Leshy music right now. <laughs> and, and I don't really think about it, but it turns out that a lot of the times in the background, th this music just plays because we spent so many hours listening to it and it was in the background, but it was just repeating and going over and over. So I, I think it really impacted us. Oh, yeah. There's uh, one time many years ago, I was out trick-or-treating with the kids and, and I started just being a purposeful dork and stuff like that. I started singing like the Goblin uh, Training Grounds song from from quest boy one like dun 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 and so i kind of stomp along with that you know and you know some kids like oh my parents are they're they're being you know embarrassing and like i'm gonna do it on purpose you know so but it was just kind of a lot of fun like i said it's just these things that you enjoy and you grew up in and you still enjoy as you get older and stuff like that oh exactly see and then uh one last question. I, I'm just curious to ask, and I, I know we've come back to games a few times, but uh, you wrote a program for something called Permanent Eraser. Is that just like a file incinerator for Mac? That's a good way to put it. It was uh, initially developed back in 2003, back when we had mechanical hard drives. And so uh, when you write over a file, it can sort of scribble over that certain area on the disk. Uh, it doesn't work quite the same with, uh, with uh, solid-state drives now because it wears things out differently. So it's uh, not quite as useful as it used to be. But uh, that's been one of my most long-standing uh, projects that I've worked on. So I've, uh, a number of years ago, I started making a bunch of Mac uh, utilities and then eventually got into... Uh, doing mobile programming. So it was a pretty natural step to go from Mac to iOS. And that's my standard day to day job is that, you know, I program for uh, iOS and Android devices. Oh, cool. Okay. So, so that makes sense. It, uh, it's still useful for a lot of us classic gamers. I think uh, maybe out of the rest of the population, uh, quite a few of us aren't entirely using solid state drives. In fact, many of us are probably running a 386 computer or, you know, at least something with Windows XP on it. Yeah, I do have a couple of older machines that still are running. I'm looking at a Mac SE, and that one's probably about 33 years old. Uh, I have another computer that's about a, a power Mac from 
about 2000. Uh, I have a, uh, another uh, uh, power book that one's from about 2003, another power and a uh, MacBook Pro from about 2007, in addition to some newer machines like an iMac and some newer MacBook Pros as well. And I used to have a Tandy 1000 that was still living to a certain degree until I finally uh, donated it to somebody who really loved Tandy and Radio Shack uh, equipment. That's pretty awesome. Well, well. Um, as we wrap up, uh, do you have any plugs or shout outs that you want to give? Well, you've given a few great shout outs during the episode already, but uh, um, certainly been enjoying what I've been doing. Uh, just a kind of quick uh, overview of uh, some of the games I've helped port already. Of course, there was uh, some of the games for Infamous Adventures and Infamous Quests. So there's like the Space Quest 2 VGA, uh, King's Quest 3 VGA. Uh, there's also the two uh, Infamous Quest games. So Order of the Thorn, the King's Challenge, Quest for Infamy. Uh, I've also then ported uh, the Crimson Diamond demo, uh, Stair Quest, and another one. And hope going to try to pronounce this correctly, Ferraria de Arles or something like that. It's uh, about a girl that wants to become a bullfighter in France. Ooh. Well, that sounds nice. So, uh, thanks a lot for coming on, Chad. It was, uh, it was really good to finally get a chance to get into the meat of what it is you're doing and uh, not knowing a lot about Max. I found all of this fascinating and I think I learned a few things today. Absolutely. My pr pleasure. It's been a uh, great talking with you, Anna and Paul and, uh, uh, appreciate the CGG, uh, hosting this podcast and great work that, uh, looks like you guys are getting one out, uh, close to about every week or two. Tuesday's the day we usually put them out. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Classic Gamers Guild. We have a page and a group. You can find us on Twitter at the CG Guild. Email is mail at classicgamersguild.com. And I would also like to say a thank you to all of our Patreon patrons for making the show possible, including patrons in our extra special thanks tier. Here's to you, Jay Holmes and Jeffrey Couch. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast and being awesome. Have a great night and don't do a murder. <laughs>